You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Hi folks, today is March 17, 2020. Happy St. Patrick's Day! But guess what? Today we are not going to talk about the Irish. We did an, an entire episode last year about Irish scientists and beer making, and you should definitely go back and check it out. It was a really good episode. What I would like to talk about today are women scientists and dedicate this show to female scientists who have contributed quite a bit to scientific discoveries in the Finger Lakes area. You will hear contributions by Liz Mahood and Esther Kusin with really interesting profiles of women scientists as well as an exciting interview about cancer research and an interview about antibiotics in dairy. My name is Mark Sharvari and I have the pleasure to be your host today on Locally Sourced Science. But first, I wanted to mention another scientist, a Hungarian physician, Ignat Semmelweis. He was described as the savior of mothers and the father of handwashing. You see what I'm doing here, right? Semmelweis discovered that the incidence of childbed fever could be drastically cut by the use of hand disinfection. This fever was common in the mid-19th century hospitals, and very often it was fatal. Semmelweis proposed the practice of washing hands with chlorinated lime solutions in 1847 while working in Vienna General Hospital's first obstetrical clinic, where doctors' wards had three times the mortality of midwives' wards. Why? Because midwives washed their hands. Despite various publications of results where hand washing reduced mortality to below 1%, Samarweis's observations conflicted with the established scientific and medical opinions of the time and his ideas were rejected by the medical community, mostly male doctors. Samarweis could offer no acceptable scientific explanation for his findings and some doctors were offended at the suggestion that they should wash their hands and mocked him for it. In 1865, the increasingly outspoken Samarweis supposedly suffered a nervous breakdown, and then he was committed to an asylum by his colleagues. Sadly, he died two weeks later, at the age of 47, after he was beaten by the guards. Semmelweis's practice earned widespread acceptance only years after his death when Louis Pasteur confirmed the germ theory and Joseph Lister, acting on French microbiologist research, 
practiced and operated using hygienic methods with great success. Currently, the medical university in Budapest is named after Ignaz Semmelweis. So scientific evidence is real. And please, please, wash your hands. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. I'm Liz Mahood, and throughout the month of March, Locally Sourced Science is featuring a woman in STEM who has significantly impacted her field and the lives of everyday people. This week's feature is Yu Yu Tu, a Chinese biochemist who has saved the lives of millions of people worldwide that have been infected with malaria. The story of how Tu achieved this amazing feat stars her, as well as a 1600-year-old textbook, and a close relative of the medicinal plant wormwood, a plant potentially familiar to Harry Potter fans. Tu was born in China in 1930. While in high school, she contracted tuberculosis, which convinced her to study medicine. After completing her medical studies, Tu conducted and eventually led research at the Academy of Traditional Chinese Medicine during the Chinese Cultural Revolution and the Vietnam War. Soldiers on both sides of the war had issues battling malaria. The United States were able to produce an anti-malarial drug called melfloquine, but North Vietnam did not have the resources to quickly produce their own anti-malarial drug. So, they turned to China, and China turned, in part, to UU2. Tu led her team in conducting a screening of thousands of anti-malarial recipes published in both the scientific literature and texts of traditional Chinese medicine. Tu first encountered the use of Artemisia annua, a close relative of Wormwood, in a 1600-year-old text entitled Emergency Prescriptions Kept Up One Sleeve. However, this plant initially proved ineffective in combating malaria. Per the text instructions, Tu's team first boiled the plant, and this resulted in very low yields of the active antimalarial drug called artemisinin. This changed when Tu consulted an even older text called the Handbook of Prescriptions for Emergency Treatments, written in the year 340 by Gi Hong. This text instructs the reader to steep the plant in cold water, and following this, Tu then devised a different method to extract artemisinin. Following this method led to a dramatic increase in yield in a compound that was 100% effective when administered on a malaria-infected mice and monkeys. Tu then moved forward to clinical trials after first testing the drug on herself to ensure its safety. Nowadays, artemisinin is an important natural product that has saved the lives of millions infected with malaria, predominantly in Southeast Asia and South America. Although Tu and her team completed this landmark research and developed a life-saving drug, their research was published anonymously due to the restrictions of the Cultural Revolution. Tu also had a quite unconventional training. She had no postdoctoral position, received no training outside of China, and was not a member of the Chinese Academy of Science. Due to these factors, her research remained in obscurity until 2011 when she received the Leisker Debeke Clinical Research Award. In 2015, her research was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, and she was thus the first Chinese person to win a Nobel Prize. Tu resides in Beijing with her husband. 
I'm Liz Mahood, and that was Locally Sourced Science's feature on A Woman in STEM. This is Locally Sourced Science, and we bring you news, scientific information, and everything that's happening in the sciences in the Finger Lakes area. We would love to hear from you. So if you have a Twitter account, tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. As you know, this month we are recognizing women scientists and the contributions that they are making to help us understand the diverse world around us and the worlds inside us. I recently spoke with Dr. Ming Ming Wu, Professor of Biological and Environmental Engineering in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. Dr. Wu uses engineering and physics principles to understand biological processes. She is interested in the forces that are exerted on cells or by cells when they move inside the body. In January of this year, Dr. Wu and colleagues published a study exploring how breast cancer tumor cells move inside the body. The group created a device that could be used to study how breast cancer cells respond to the presence of a chemokine, a hormone released by lymph node immune cells that can attract tumor cells in the body. Here, Dr. Wu describes how she created the microfluidic device and how it works. We make device which we call microfluidic device, which is a micrometer in scale. So one micron is like a hundredth of your hair width. So they're they're very small, but they're not small for the cells. So cells sort of are at a similar magnitude in length scale with these devices. So the advantage is we can control the environment really well. We can also um, imaging them. So this allowed us to do a very precise experiment in the sense we can uh, provide very well-defined chemical gradients and, and we can change them and we can see how the cells respond to it quantitatively. To do their experiments, Dr. Wu's group suspended cells in a solution of collagen. This is a protein that produces a support for cells that mimics the environment that they might experience inside tissues in the body. Here, she describes the idea behind this. So, so, so collagen matrix basically is, um, is the architecture of our tissue. So that that's how make our tissue stiff. And so we, uh, we uh, resuspend them into reconstitution them in, in, in our device. So the cells basically have an environment that's similar, but not exactly the same, but closer than, uh, uh, let's say, surface of the petri dish, which is typically these experiments were done before. Uh, so, so it provides a more three-dimensional structure for the cells. 
After the cells are suspended in collagen, they are put into the microfluidic device. They are then exposed to a gradient of chemokine. A gradient creates a gradually increasing concentration of the chemokine for the cells to be exposed to. Then the scientists observe the cells to see what they do. Here, Dr. Ru talks about chemokines and why they were used in their study. Chemokines are things that are secreted by immune cells. And uh, uh, so CCL19 is a very potent chemokine that secretes in lymph nodes. And uh, uh, so for breast cancer metastasis, the first stop typically is in lymph nodes. So, and also immune cells are very good at getting into lymph nodes when something is wrong with your body. So people understand um, how immune cells get to the lymph nodes because they, they are responding to this chemokine. And uh, so there is, before us, there is a study in Germany. Um, they looked at uh, 15, 16 of malignant breast tumor cell line, and they looked at all the uh, receptors uh, um, that's responding to uh, chemokines. Uh, they find that there are three uh, receptors that's highly expressed on the malignant tumor cell, uh, breast tumor cell. And one of them is called CCR7, which is the receptor to the CCL19 that we study. So this is the reason that we decided to look at CCL19, whether tumor cells also respond to it. We use a cell line, which is immortalized a long time ago from a, a human uh, cancer patient. If you look at the same population of uh, breast cancer cells, especially the one we look at, they look all different. Some of them are elongated, some of them are rounded, and some of them have like um, a skirt fanning out. So they all move differently, they look differently. How do the differences between cells translate into the behavior of the cells? And what determines whether breast cancer cells stay in one area or spread to other areas? So the, I'll answer the second question first. I think that's the most sort of intriguing question for us, which is, you know, why some cells decide to stay, some cells decide to, to leave the primary cells. In general, if the cells don't go anywhere, stay in the primary tumor, then it's not lethal. The, the problem comes when they uh, get away from primary tumor and uh, especially go into blood vessel, then they take highway and go into a secondary organ and establish a new tumor. And that's what we call metastasis, which is the lethal part of, of a cancer cell. So a lot of our work is, in fact, to try to understand um, how the cancer cells decide to move, if they move, how could they manage to go from one place to the other? Because it's, it's not that trivial, because cells in general move very slowly. 
And uh, um, so the question of how could they actually manage to overcome so, so many barriers to, to reach to destination is, is the, the main question we, uh, we, we try to understand. So the breast cancer cell line that Dr. Wu used in her studies has a receptor called CCR7 that binds the chemokine CCL19. They then decided to put the tumor cells in their microfluidic chambers and added the chemokines to the chambers. This is what they observed. We uh, tried to repeat this experiment with tumor cells. Mm -hmm. And what we found is they don't do what immune cell does, which is like very quickly respond to it. What what we find is they still do their random walk. Um, However, we find that uh, uh, they move faster and also they change their shape and the way of moving and they, they they have uh, the, the population becomes more diversified. There are some fast movers, slow mover. So we thought maybe chemotaxis, which is the response to the chemical gradient, uh, may not be the the uh, the reason that tumor cells go to lymph nodes. Maybe it's the heterogeneity, that the fact that they become more diversified, uh, such that. Uh, some, like a small population of some were landing in the lymph nodes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm speaking with Dr. Mingming Wu, Professor of Biological and Environmental Engineering in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. She's talking about her recent study of how breast cancer cells move in response to chemokines. Dr. Wu and colleagues noticed that, whereas most immune cells that they tested responded to the chemokine by moving quickly, the tumor cells acted differently. They saw that just a few cells move quickly in response to the chemokine. Those cells that move quickly also change their shape. This response of the tumor cells revealed what she calls heterogeneity in the cell population. So you can look at one cell at a time. Yes, yes, that's the key issue. We follow, we can follow a cell for like days. The cells are confined in this microfluidic channel, and the field of view sort of seeing the whole channel. So they typically within a day, thirty six hours is sort of the typical imaging time for our experiment. So within the imaging time, they typically don't go out of field of view, but sometimes they do. So so what we do is we track a lot of cells and then build up statistics from that. The important thing is some cells move very fast, but, but this, there are very few of these. Like say if we track 100 cells, typically one or two. So the question is, uh, uh, first of all, these one or two very fast movers are very important for our study because um, if one cell escaped and went somewhere, built a new tumor, that's it. So however, because of this small number of cells, uh, it is very hard to build up uh, statistics. Uh, so this is sort of where the challenge comes from, how to statistically um, quantify a rare event. 
Dr. Wu set up a collaboration with another scientist who studies rare events. Dr. Andrews Ridd is a particle physicist at Cornell who searches for super rare matter particles such as quarks. Dr. Reed had been using a statistical analysis called a Levy distribution analysis that Dr. Wu thought would be well suited to the analysis of the tumor cells that her lab was studying. Here she talks about the collaboration. So, so he's a particle, uh, high energy particle physicist, and they are looking for a Higgs boson, which is even more rare. And uh, so they have built up very nice statistical packages that's open source and you can actually uh, get it for free online, which was like really great for us because yeah, students can just download it to, 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 their, um, to their computer. So the undergraduate student is a gift She's the second author on the paper. So she took all the data, and uh, uh, my postdoc, uh, BJ Kim, who's now working in Rionix, a local uh, high-tech company, uh, he's uh, very uh, talented in math, so, so he grasped the, the idea very quickly, and, and we uh, started to analyze. So it turns out that chemokines significantly enhanced the, the, uh, the heterogeneity of, of the population. And in this case, heterogeneity is defined as a diverse population of, uh, according to cell motility. What Dr. Wu means by heterogeneity of cell motility is that only some of the tumor cells moved more differently than the majority of the cells. And those were the cells that they were really interested in. Here, Dr. Wu talks about how many cells they looked at and how many times they repeated the experiments. For each experiment, we usually track two, three hundred cells, and uh, um, and uh, we build statistics upon that. The way that we build up confidence is by repeating the same experiment three times. So that's sort of the golden standard of in, in biology that all the experiments get repeated three times, and if it's reasonably robust, then then we make a claim. I asked Dr. Wu what she and her colleagues think about their results. Why does she think that about 1-2% to of the cells they studied changed their shape and move quickly in response to the chemokine? I think they have, at the genetic level, they have a different, uh, different genetic makeup. So it would be really interesting to isolate these cells and uh, sequence them to see what exactly is different from this this fast mover than the other cell. So yeah, so we have been discussing with our biology collaborator to look at single cell sequencing to look at the the uh, what happened to this particular cell. Finally, I asked her what kinds of experiments she and her colleagues are planning for the future. 
So we are we are doing a lot of force measurement. So before we uh, measured single cell force, and now we would like to look at how a tumor as a as a tumor because uh, as a spheroid that how how they generate force and go to places. To learn more about the recent study by Dr. Wu and colleagues. You can read the paper. It is published in the journal Integrative Biology, the January 2020 edition. We'll post the information on our website. For locally sourced science, I'm Esther Rakusin. If you'd like to hear more or would like to listen to older episodes, you can go to locallysourcedscience.org or you can subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Last year at the American Association for Advancement of Science or AAAS meeting, I ran into Dr. Emilia Safi. So as we are celebrating women scientists in March, here's another scientist who has been contributing to the discoveries in the Finger Lakes area. So we are here at the AAAS meeting and just uh, ran into one of the other corner presenters today. So can you please tell us who you are and what your presentation was just about? Sure. So I'm Amelia Greiner Safi, and I have about three different affiliations with Cornell. I'm in, the, in their Department of Communication, their Master of Public Health Program, and Population Medicine and Diagnostic Sciences. And I was speaking today about antibiotic stewardship and perceptions from three key stakeholder groups. So we're interested in what dairy farmers thought veterinarians and um, U.S. consumers about the role of antibiotics in dairy farming. I attended her talk when she discussed how farmers, veterinarians, and consumers are approaching antibiotics in the dairy industry. So one of the other big issues that came up was around, particularly with conventional farmers, um, frustration with consumer misperceptions of antibiotic use on dairy farms and what that meant for animal welfare and protections. So farmers were worried about a couple of different dimensions here with consumers, but I think the two big things were that there was this belief that if people were not buying an organic product, that the, there was a belief that they were, the milk was laced with antibiotics and that this farmer wanted people to know that they should know that it's not the case. All the milk is tested and that there's nothing new there. What did you take away from that survey? Sure. So we were really lucky to use uh, the Cornell National Social Survey. And um, for each of those, it's a 1,000 members of the US public that are surveyed. And I think the biggest thing that came away is that consumers are concerned about antibiotic use within uh, dairy farming, but they're kind of confused and a little bit conflicted about their decision making. So on one hand, they perceive that there's a threat, and they um, are willing to pay more for milk raised without uh, the use of antibiotics. On the other hand, they're willing to see more antibiotics being used in organic production. So um, consumers are an important group to understand. They drive a lot of the markets. Um, and I'd like to get a better sense of what they're thinking about, um, about antibiotic use and how that relates to values and concerns. 
They also talk about that if you don't use antibiotics, and this gets kind of to the themes of suffering, that you're worrying about you worry about the welfare of your animals. And so it's no different than would you not give your kids antibiotics if they were sick. Same with cows. We don't give them antibiotics for no reason. If they're sick, they need to be treated. So they're really, there are concerns about what it means for continued pressures to use less. That said, a number of people will talk about, if you push them, it's like, okay, we can probably do more. They do talk about thinking about the role of prevention, top facilities, and management practices. So I'm gonna read this final quote here. And this is again kind of really one about motivation into what's a priority for the population. So if your focus is we want to use less antibiotics, then there's a hundred different ways to do it. What well, may cost more on labor or management practices or something like that. But if that's the focus, I think any place, including us, can probably find different ways to do it to be able to reduce. So there is an awareness that there's a possibility, but there's a real concern about potential trade-offs in terms of time, costs, and labor. So there were some really good questions at the end and the Q&A, and some of them came from high school students, which was very interesting. So what do you think about the younger generation being really interested in this topic? Oh, I mean, I think high school students, I mean, I was just A, delighted that there were so many high school students here, and I think their questions were just as good as and sometimes better than people, you know, considerably older. Um, I think they're, I mean, they are the consumers of the future. They are going to be entering college. We, they're an important group to understand and to involved in the training and the education. So I would, I would love them to, I would love to hear from them. I'd love to think about what their priorities are and some of their questions. And um, I'd encourage everybody to keep showing up to this and keep asking questions because they're, they're pushing us and they're helping us think. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to see you. If you need more science in your life, visit locallysourcedscience.org and listen to other episodes. We would like to thank Joe Luis for the great music and voiceover. My name is Mark Sharvari. Science out!